Hi there, and welcome to the second episode of the Disrupt Podcast, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by the team at Disrupt Africa. My name is Tom Jackson. And I'm Gabriella Mulligan. Every two weeks, Disrupt Podcast wraps up all the key goings on in the African tech startup space and brings you exclusive interviews with special guests that have been making waves. The first edition of the podcast was listened to by hundreds of you, shared widely, and we've received much valuable feedback. So stay in touch, let us know what you think, and we hope you continue to enjoy our fortnightly ramblings. Let's get into the news from the last two weeks. Kicking us off is South African fintech startup Zuna, which announced it sold its Malawian assets to global money transfer group Makuru. Significant news as it sees Zuna scale down its over-the-counter money transfer business to focus on B2B, which is a fairly major pivot. Quite a big development, but there's no getting away from the fact the African startup space, like the rest of the global economy, is in the midst of a COVID crisis. In the last episode, we heard about the impending job cuts at South African fintech Yoko, and more flagship tech companies on the continent have since followed suit. Nigerian VOD company Iroko has furloughed 28% of its team members in the country as it aims to minimise losses, which CEO Jason Njoku says will still run into the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Andela has also announced it will let go of 135 employees. I think we can expect to hear more unfortunate news like this in the coming weeks and months as startups adjust to this new normal. As we'll hear later on, cash and the conservation of that cash is going to be increasingly important to founders as the crisis unfolds. As investment and revenues decline, I think it's fair to say the African startup scene is set to face its biggest challenge yet. A few organisations are, however, doing their bit to keep the money flowing. Vilgro Kenya has awarded $150,000 in grant funding to 12 startups with solutions fighting COVID-19. The Kenya and Nigeria-based VC firm Novastar Ventures has closed its second fund, raising $108 million for investments in East and West African startups. And South Africa's Technology Innovation Agency has signed an agreement with local investor networks Dazzle Angels and Josie Angels to co-invest in early-stage businesses. As Gabriella mentioned, all the conventional wisdom is that funding for the tech space will decline as recession bites and investors increasingly focus on their own portfolios. There's no sign of that just yet, though, as startups continued what has so far been an extremely impressive 2020 from the fundraising point of view. Egypt led the way, with well-capitalised mobility company Swivel adding more than $20 million to its investment pot. Instabug raised a $5 million Series A round. Social commerce startup Brymore banks $3.5 million pre-Series A. And beauty e-commerce platform Source Beauty raised pre-seed cash. In South Africa, there were rounds for startup stock exchange A2X markets grocery delivery platform Zolzi, and recruitment service Jobox. Tanzania's East Africa Fruits closed a Series A investment worth $3.1 million in a mixture of equity and debt, while startups from Senegal and Kenya have been securing capital commitments from angel investors taking part in new Zoom-based shark tank, The Nest. But the biggest round of the fortnight was raised by Lagos-based e-health startup Helium Health, which took home a $10 million Series A round for investors such as Global Ventures, AAIC, Tencent, and Y Combinator. Founded in 2016, Helium Health takes hospitals and clinics instantly digital with its electronic medical records product and will use the funding to expand its service in existing markets and move into new ones. Gabriella caught up with CEO Adekoke Olubusi to find out more. Congrats on the amazing funding round. 
Um, could you tell us a bit more about how long it took you to raise this round and uh, what was involved in the process? That's the thing about fundraising. You know, you, you, it always takes twice or thrice as long. I'd say in our case, it took um, maybe about three times the, t- you know, the amount of time we thought it would take. I think we thought it would take about three months. Um, and it ended up taking more about more like nine months. And that really is because, um, you know, there aren't a lot of health tech companies in Africa, specifically companies that write software. Now, I don't mean tech enabled companies like a hospital using tech or a pharmacy using tech or a, a provider providing, you know, telemedicine solutions using tech, but actually like a pure software company. Um, they're not that many. So because of the fact that you have to you know, we're essentially the first people having to educate investors in healthcare technology, having to cross that barrier and giving them trust that the market exists and the opportunity exists. Um, that's what we saw as the main reason it took so long. But it took, you know, three times as long as we originally planned. Uh, fortunately for us, because we do run a profitable business, um, you know, it d- didn't impact our ability to keep going. You've got a wide range of investors participating. How was the negotiating process different with each of them? I think we first focused on first informing our existing investors that we were looking at raising a Series A round and telling them what the plan was. And fortunately for us, um, practically all our existing institutional investors, after hearing the plan and the strategy, were committed to us. Um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, were committed to you know joining us in this process. So they really, practically all of them invested actually. So the first step was getting our existing investors to re, you know to commit to this round and to reinvest. However, um, they weren't really there wasn't really any of them who has a strong enough presence in Africa to lead a Series A round. So it just meant we had investors committed, but we still needed a lead for the round. And typically the leads set the round. So we had to look for investors that we knew were most aligned and at a Series A level, at a cross-continental scaling level, would be most aligned with us. Um, so what we did was um, we then reached out to, fortunately for us, we had been, we, we had a fund called AAIC, um, uh, which is Africa healthcare master fund, um, Africa, Asia investment and consulting. And they focus on investing exclusively in Africa and in healthcare. Um, and they had reached out to us previously or we already had a relationship. So we just reached back out to them and said, Hey, here's what we're thinking. Would you guys be looking to willing to lead? And, um, would you be open to the terms that were setting around that? So we were able to, you know, engage them. And eventually we got the co-lead in global ventures, um, and basically AIC um, helped us with setting the terms as the lead investor, um, and everyone else essentially latched on to those terms. Um, can you maybe tell us a bit more about this valuation process then, or the valuation model? First thing we did was establish what our assumptions were, what pricing assumptions, what sales assumptions were driving the numbers, you know, behind the financial model. You know, things like, the, you know, this is the average amount we're going to charge per hospital. This is the number of hospitals we're going to get to, you know, because that's what drives those assumptions are what drive the numbers in the financial model. Then in the financial model, we then went around and broke it into three cases. What a, a, the, the base case would be, what the best case scenario would be and what the middle ground would be. That way you can, you know, play around with the different scenarios and kind of think about what, how your risk appetite is um, um, in, in a way where if you're the kind of investor who feels that, oh yes, you know, you're, you're more open. You believe we can do a lot more and hit a lot more numbers then you can probably set the financial model to the higher end, to the best case scenario 
case and it automatically updates all the numbers and you feel comfortable with that, it would give you a valuation around that. So essentially there were three valuations. There was a base case valuation, there was a middle ground valuation, there was a best case scenario valuation. Obviously, as the startup, we would always push for the highest valuation, which is the best case scenario, right? Um, however, you know, <laughs> of course, investors would, you know, want the Worst case scenario. Um, so the, the, I guess the game there is trying to figure out the middle ground. Um, and that's what we did. But we also did that with, you know, having things like a comparable, compare, comparable analysis where we compare to similar companies in other markets and what their, I guess, their multiples were upon acquisition or IPO. Um, so we did that as well. Then we also discounted that further because we are in emerging markets and in Africa. So we did that as well. Uh, I mean, we ran a, you know, we did the estimation of the weighted average cost of capital. Um, there's a formula that we used to make that happen until we came up with what the valuation would be. Um, and yeah, we create, you know, we put that in both the model and a deck, a presentation on its own. And uh, it was something that actually gave a lot of investors confidence in us. Why did you offer an Africa discount? Um, because we know there are a lot of, ex- you know, accelerating circumstances in this market that, you know, that make it harder for you to use the same multiples um, as you would in other markets, you know, things like, you know, currency fluctuation, things like political instability, um, all those factors, we decided to, you know, account for that and discount accordingly. That way, investors would also feel comfortable that we're taking into consideration those risks, um, because those risks are definitely higher than in other markets. And I also feel like one of the reasons we did that and we had to do that was because we know it's going to be a topic of conversation with every investor. So we ourselves might as well get ahead of it um, and have a plan around that. And, um, and, you know, in essence, it was a form of an Africa discount. It's something that we don't like, but it's unfortunately um, something that I think we have to live with for the near future um, as a way to mitigate risk uh, when you're taking investors, especially when the investors are mostly um, international or not, um, not local to Africa. Is it a good thing to have so many investors? I think I can answer in three points. First being that it's a, we're in a unique position in, in healthcare, in the healthcare space in Africa, because um, it's very fragmented. So really, there's no investor that could influence your success per se, um, to the extent that they could in other markets. Because it's such a fragmented market, no one has any real sway in the African healthcare sector. So that just means you need as many friends as possible. You need as many friends as possible. So the, the, the industry we're in um, is the real reason why I think you need as many investors and partners as possible, just because of how fragmented it is. Um, that's my first point. Second point is, you know, a lot of these investors actually are just like financial investors. They're not trying to participate in your decision-making process. So really, they're just on your cap table and they get updates and they tweet about you and tell friends about you. That's as much of an impact as they have. They're actually not going to help us sell to any customers. Or and Also, there's no heavy demand at our time because of them, so it's not that heavy. Uh, and third, thirdly, I'd say, finally, we also limit the number of people who participate in our decision-making process You know, to the board members or board observers, which are really few. So um, that's how we manage having so many investors, because we do have, I mean, I think 30 to 40 investors in total on our cap table. And how many board members? Um, I believe there are five board members. And what are the negatives of having so many investors? The risk of information sharing, you know, you kind of have to limit the information you share with everyone because you don't know who else is invested in your competitor. 
you know, that's one of the key risks. Um, another risk is, but that information sharing is such a big risk because you don't want people giving out your strategy or your numbers. Like we take it very, like we never, we never shared any files through email or Dropbox. Like everyone who wanted to view our data room could only see it view only through Digify. You know, they have to log in and get a one-time passcode. Like we were very specific about the process just because as much as possible, we don't want our numbers, our strategy out there um, because it's very, you know, that's our unique differentiator. We don't want people knowing these things. Um, so the risk of information sharing, I would say, is the biggest one. The other is just the, um, I guess, the annoyance of having to coordinate so many people. You know, imagine you need to, you know, get documents signed to close the round. You have to circle out with 40 different people who are in, like, 40 different parts of the world who are doing their own thing. Some may even be on vacation, you know, with, like, no access to the internet. So, But you have to wait to get their signature. So the process of coordinating that can be very distracting. Um, however, I feel like it's not something we can escape because of how fragmented the space we're in is, and we even expect to have more investors in the future. You're going to use the funding for expansion within Africa. What's the plan? So we're targeting three markets primarily. First is East Africa, you know, countries like Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda definitely are expanding there. Then there's North Africa, Morocco, Egypt, Tunisia, you know, well on our target. And other parts of French-speaking and Francophone Africa as well, Ivory Coast, Senegal, we're definitely targeting these regions. And it's because when you look at the landscape, the healthcare landscape there, the products we have, the suite of solutions we have for healthcare providers, payers, patients, public health, and the government, you know, is useful in all these markets today. So, well, the reason we, you know, think about, and we could be expanding remotely from here because, you know, a lot of the stuff we do are things you can set up remotely, but it's very important to us that our, our entity, um, our Helium Health, when it's being viewed in these regions, is being localized as much as possible. We do not want to be a foreign company, an international company, you know, working in the market. No, we want to be a local company with local team members who understand the, you know, the local context and nuances, because um, that's how you drive the most value in healthcare. And, you know, that thinking is very important to us. So what role do local partners on the ground play in uh, when you're planning these new launches? We intentionally targeted um, investors who were in East Africa, North Africa. You know, I mean, AAIC that led one of the co-leads of the round, they're primarily in East Africa. Um, um, Global VC is, you know, primarily focused on the Middle East and North Africa which, you know, is just a clear example of what we did there. We really, you know, looked strategically for investors who invest heavily in those spaces because historically we've had investors who are more global or more West Africa focused. And the, the, the responsibility there is to leverage their network insights in order to scale there. So they're already facilitating. I mean, I can tell you we've done this year alone, we've probably done nearly 100, you know, meetings with people in these markets, other startups, um, potential clients, government contacts, uh, telecoms companies. Literally, a lot of this was facilitated by our investors. So that's one of the core reasons they came in. And so what are the opportunities and difficulties um, to expanding within Africa? Definitely movement is a limitation now. However, the, the differences in each region um, from a market structure standpoint, from a an openness to um, imported solutions or, you know, like um, to, to import an international 
um, solutions when expanded locally, um, language would potentially be a barrier because there are some countries we're targeting are French speaking. Fortunately, our platform is localized in French, and we do have you know a lot of team members who speak French, but that's an example of another barrier. Um, but yeah, those are the typical barriers we think about, and definitely there is the regulatory aspect where if you're dealing with healthcare, you know, in countries like Nigeria, you don't need to keep the data locally in the country. However, if you're dealing in like Kenya, for example, the data has to seat in the country. You know, there's a regulatory aspect as well. Um, but in terms of opportunities and benefits, I think it's limitless because you still, you know, we find, and this is one of the things we all, you know, always talk about. I feel like there could be a hundred helium healths in Africa right now who raised, you know, even more money than we did. And the opportunity would still be that wide because there's still so much to do to revive the healthcare sector here, because I think it's been abandoned for too long. Um, the, you know, the innovations we're bringing out now, these were spurred in the US and in other parts of the world in the early 2000s, in the late 90s, right? It's like we're catching up 20 years later. So we definitely want to speed things up. And um, I think the opportunity to scale is definitely wide open. What new products do you plan to roll out? So we actually, you know, basically spent my last year building a suite of new products, which we already started rolling out. And that's what we're going to be you know, expanding with as, as we go deeper into these markets. One of those core things that we think is very interesting is um, facility is our teleclinic product. I'll start with that one. We just launched it. It's a telemedicine platform for hospitals to use to see their patients virtually. Uh, we launched it about three weeks ago. It's exploded with like, I think over 300 hospitals have signed up already. That aren't even that are not helium existent helium users, and that's because the lockdown is forcing everyone to, you know, have to start seeing patients virtually, and they need software in order to facilitate that. Everything from the scheduling to the payments to the communication to the actual consultation um, after. So all of that process, the platform does. So we're very excited to see that scale. Uh, we're even working on partnerships that can help us scale that even further. That's one part. But the other thing I would say is really cool would be. I think two, I'll say two other things. Another thing that's really cool is our uh, care credit product, which essentially enables us um, provide instant loans, instant financing to healthcare providers within our network because we're able to essentially you know, develop a credit score for them using a machine learning model we built based on the data that they impute um, within the platform, within our EMR system as they use it. So essentially a hospital gets an instant loan, gets access to instant loan, just because they use a Helium platform. So that's very, very exciting for us. Uh, but I think a final thing that's exciting for us is building um, software for the public sector, specifically around workflow automation and emergency response. We think that's definitely going to be a big deal in the future, especially with like the rise of COVID and uh, the need for the containment of various um, outbreaks like Lassa fever and Ebola um, across Nigeria and other parts of Africa. So those are really exciting for us. And we're, you know, we're, we're going to do whatever it takes to, you know, see this product live um, across the continent. As we mentioned at the start of the episode, Helium Health is not the only company that has bagged big money in the last couple of weeks. In fact, the first half of this year has been so impressive from a funding perspective that in any other world, African tech startups would be well on the way to easily beating the records set in 2019. Presumably, these rounds were all well underway before the COVID crisis hit. 
the economic impact of the pandemic may yet put a stopper on investment as the year progresses, unfortunately. Tom, you've been chatting to an investor about how they see the rest of the year playing out, haven't you? Yes, I caught up with Musoni Washira, who's Investment Director at EWB Ventures, based out of Nairobi. She agrees that the rounds we've seen recently for the likes of Helium, Instabug, etc. would have been in the offing for months prior to COVID, and it's inevitable the amount of capital available to startups will dry up as investors focus on their existing portfolios. It isn't only startups that are feeling the pinch, though. EWB is itself fundraising for its Hummingbird Impact Funds that it announced back in March, and Musoni said even they are facing their own challenges when it comes to raising. And what did she say? If investors are focusing on their portfolio companies, what in particular are they advising companies to do to ride out the crisis? Various things. Um, as we shall hear, Musoni also believes there are plenty of opportunities for African entrepreneurs created by COVID-19 and its impact. Uh, but for the short term, at least, staying alive is the name of the game. And in that respect, cash is king. Welcome to the podcast, Miss Oni. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so um, we, what we keep hearing with regards to this COVID-19 crisis and the associated economic crisis is that funding for African tech startups is likely to sharply decline. Um, we're not really seeing that yet. A lot of the, We're seeing a lot of sort of major rounds in the last couple of weeks, 10 million for Helium Health, 5 million for Instabug, 3 million, 3 odd million for East Africa Fruits. Is this going to be a delayed thing? I mean, when should we expect to see a decline in funding? And if we are, when are we going to see that decline? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And, you know, the, the ones that you've just mentioned, we need to be cognizant of how long the fundraising cycle is. And so by the time you're hearing an announcement, due diligence probably began a year ago. And so those are things that are already in the pipeline and so are coming to fruition now. I think what we're already seeing is that most investors are focusing on their existing portfolio and they're refraining from new new ventures. And that's likely going to be the case till the end of this year. Um, and post-COVID, what we expect to see is a short-lived surge in investments as uncertainty decreases. But I think that will then be followed by a slump uh, because it will be hindered by the global scarcity of capital. From an investor's perspective, is it a good time to be active in the market with capital to spend? Um, because it's likely to be a buyer's market for the next sort of 18 to 24 months, no? It, it is a buyer's market right now. And I think it does depend on what stage you play. I think if, you, if you're playing in the early stage, so pre-seed, seed, and, you know, series A, I think it's, an, it's a great time to be active in the market. If you look at what happened in the dot-com bubble and the 2008-2009 financial crisis, these were not setbacks for venture investing globally um, and quite the opposite. Okay, so there's an opportunity for, for entrepreneurs to sort of innovate new business models out of this crisis. So with the new challenges that the crisis is bringing and the behavioral changes that it's precipitating, I think it presents an opportunity for entrepreneurs to innovate and provide meaningful services. And in times of market um, uncertainty, technology companies that provide efficient cost savings and transparent value to all parties are the ones that will thrive. So we've seen, you know, um, a lot of apps for work from home, social media, food delivery, telehealth, online education, etc., become major contributors to society and it in just a few weeks. 
And I think it's starting a trend that is likely to continue into the future. Um, in terms of, I mean, I guess the key thing for a lot of companies active at the moment is, is surviving into that future. What, what, what are sort of the key, what are the key bits of advice that you would give to, to founders out there right now in terms of making sure they can ride out this crisis to, to prosper later on? I think they've heard this a lot. <laughs> cash is king. Cash is king. Um, and so in the immediate term, ventures need to do whatever they can to extend their runway, um, reduce fixed costs, accept lesser terms if they're closing a financing round, and only spend if there's a clear return on investment. I think, though, a venture survival will depend far more on radical innovation than tactical cutbacks. And so what I feel is fundamentally important right now is organizational agility. The ability of ventures to explore adjacencies to their existing products and services and create value. And for those that whose work is related to coronavirus, for them to seize the need and the opportunity. Can you give an example of that? So maybe I can give you an example for, for a portfolio company in my, like a, a company in my portfolio called Mshule. So they're an SMS learning platform. And so they're an edtech platform, but they've partnered with um, Tibu, who's a healthcare provider to create content on COVID. And so now they're distributing um, learning for students and families and healthcare professionals in local languages. Um, and it's a text-based platform. So they're leveraging the platform that they already have to offer content that's needed and necessary in this time. And so that's opening up new partnerships for them and new markets. Is there a danger when it comes to that, that startups sort of go too far one direction and almost for a while become sort of COVID companies? So first, I don't know that it will be the new normal, but I agree with you that you can't take it too far. You don't want to be just like a COVID response venture. In the example that I've just shared with you, what, what's happening now is that Mshule is able to enter the healthcare space while still playing in the education space. So they're not veering away from their core vision, which is to educate on SMS platforms. Um, they're just now educating people who are adults and not just young people. Um, and so I think one needs to be careful because you can also just run through your cash, right? Pretty quickly trying to, um, trying to, to, to explore adjacencies that are either not well suited to your business. If they are, and it's not a heavy lift, then I would encourage it. From, from your point of view as an investor, I mean, how, how big a role are you playing within your portfolio companies at this time? And should startups be able to look to their investors and lean on them a little bit? I think the role of an investor is is growing um, during this time. Of, and it also depends on the stage where we add. We have portfolio companies um, who are more mature, for example, and who are revenue generating, they're profitable. Um, they need to talk to us maybe once a month uh, to give them strategy input. For the younger portfolio, you can see us having, you know, weekly calls or um, even more regular sessions. Uh, those who have structured boards are having board meetings every other week because um, things are changing drastically every other week. And the the feedback that they're getting there is, you know, manage your cash flow. Like that is the number one uh, financial statement that you need to be on top of. Um, and make sure that your your existing revenue streams and the partnerships that you have 
maintain those, grow those. Um, and so I think having that bird's eye view of an investor, because especially investors who look across sectors, um, makes brings a, a whole lot of value. And also investors who look across geographies to also understand uh, what's happening in the various countries also bring a great deal of value. When we talk about sort of managing cash flow and cash being king and all this type of thing, I mean, the major expense of most venture-backed startups, at least, is presumably staff and personnel. Um, are, are we expecting lots of job losses across the across the industry? I think we will see job losses. We've already started seeing job losses. I think you saw the announcement by Andela, and I think we, we can expect to see more of that coming through. Um, I've also seen, like, just looking at my portfolio, um, the, the founders really wanting to take care of their staff. Um, and I think that's a really good trend and one that I hope to see going forward. Um, and But you have to rationalize all this cost. And so it's, you know, do you, do you cut costs across the board? And we've seen pay cuts of between 40 and 60%. Um, and who takes a lion's share, obviously, uh, the founding team and the management team ought to take the lion's share and then everything else is distributed across. Uh, but really like taking care of, of your workers, I'm seeing that more and more. And obviously in situations where that is just not an option that's open to the organization, we will see job job losses. Also important at the time like this are your customers. And I guess for various reasons, different startups are perhaps shedding customers um, for different reasons. Um, how important is sort of maintaining uh, open lines of communication with your customers, ensuring you're reacting in an agile way to, to what they need at this time? I think it's fundamentally important. Um, I think the relationship the the founders need to have is between the, them, the organization and the investors, organization and their customers, organization and their, and their employees. And all those matter. Uh, during this time. And I think having a very, a very investing in your brand and being authentic in your communication um, on, on what you're experiencing, where you're finding uh, tightness, how you could continue to add value, how, you know, you could adjust pricing, um, offer, offer leniency, offer longer payment cycles, like whatever it's going to take to maintain a customer. um, I think, we need to have that flexibility built into all the conversations. I mean, across the continent, what kind of response do you think we've seen from from governments in terms of helping startups through this through this kind of crisis? I think the social safety net on the continent is isn't as well established as as in the West. It's not just for startups; it's for employees. Um, it's you know for people who are becoming redundant, etc. So that safety net is very thin. Um, and, and one could say in many places, it just does not exist. So you, <laughs> you have to survive or die. I think there isn't an option of like, uh, hibernating during this time. Pitch the pod. Hi, my name is Isidore, co-founder and CEO of Starbucks. Starbus is a mobile app that connects workers to private air-conditioned and hygienic buses so they can ride to work in the morning and come back home in the evening stress-free. 
Starbus is the best alternative to informal public transport in emerging markets. We launched in Accra, Ghana in November 2019. We have completed close to 700 trips in five months. We are building the de facto public transport systems for emerging markets. And we are currently raising our pre-seed round to invest in more bus acquisition and increasing our trips volume. If you'd like to build this vision with us by investing in this round, visit our website, starbus.co, spelled S-T-A-B-U-S dot C-O, to get in touch. Thank you very much. That's all for this episode. We hope you found it interesting. And as ever, please let us know what you think via email or social media. Please do tell your friends and colleagues to check out Disrupt Podcast on their favorite podcasting platform. We'll see you back here again in two weeks' time. In the meantime, stay safe. Bye. Bye.